0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Game Changer Lacrosse podcast. I'm your host, Joe Ivoli. The Game Changer Lacrosse podcast is about talking to people who have dedicated their life to the game of lacrosse and learning about who they are, how they got to where they are today, and what they do to improve themselves and their teams. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GC Sports, and if you're a coach or a parent, check out Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. You can ditch the emails and spreadsheets. The free Game Changer Team Manager app streamlines communication, scheduling, and live scoring into one easy-to-use app. Game Changer Team Manager is 100% free for your entire team. Learn more at gc.com forward slash team manager or search for Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. Today on the show, we have Pat Kellalori. Pat is the chief development officer for the Headstrong Foundation. He's the brother of Nick Kellalori, the founder of Headstrong. Nick was diagnosed with cancer in 2005 after his freshman year at Hofstra University. He passed in 2006 after founding the Headstrong Foundation, something his family continues to run and grow to this day. Pat and I got a chance to talk about Nick, his time with Hofstra Lacrosse, the mission of the Headstrong Foundation, and where it's going over the next 10 to 15 years. For anyone looking to learn more, donate, or get involved with the Headstrong Foundation, go to headstrong.org. Here's my interview with Pat Callalori. Pat, welcome to the show. Joe, it's
1: a pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to get to talk. Thanks for coming on, but let's get started, um, you know, sort of like I always do. Can you tell us how Nick got started playing lacrosse?
1: Sure. Uh, We were privileged enough to grow up in an area just in the south suburbs of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And the game was here from the time we were kids. In fact, my mother and father actually met at a lacrosse game. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I guess you could say that the, uh, the game was, was part of our lives before we were even born. And, um, in coming up in this area, you know, we got our opportunity to see a lot of kids playing the game before us. Um, my brothers, my younger two brothers really took to uh, a player by the name of Mike Buzza. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mike served as just an early mentor to my younger brothers, turning them onto the sport. And then as they got a little older, having the opportunity to play, um they were mentored by a slew of guys who were just so giving to teaching the sport to them uh and really kind of planting a seed for their interest and in, uh you know it just set their interest on fire and they right. just had a lot of accessibility to great coaching over the years
0: right right and, and real quick can you can you walk us through your family how how is it uh how, how many brothers and sisters do you have
1: so the dynamics of our family are there's four boys Uh, I being the eldest, uh, my brother Daniel, and then Nicholas, and then Michael.
0: Gotcha. And we
1: were all we were all athletes
0: coming up. Gotcha. And so, uh, so what other sports did Nick play while I was in high school or growing up? Sure. Um, Nicholas
1: naturally took to football, uh, but as a kid, he actually played competitive soccer. It wasn't until he got into junior high um, that his interest gravitated more towards football uh nicholas was also a competitive wrestler um and exceeded very much in that sport uh and then naturally lacrosse so he was a three-sport athlete coming up
0: gotcha and so what do you think led him why did he gravitate um to lacrosse you know other than you said your your mom and dad met at a lacrosse game so it it runs in the blood a little bit but what uh what ultimately drew him to lacrosse
1: Honestly, I think it was an opportunity for, for him. Um, Nicholas was, um, the type of athlete that had the ability to, um, rise above physical limitations, uh, you know, which somewhat hindered, uh, his progress on a football field. Uh, Nicholas was the type of kid that no matter what sport he did play, uh, he was a dynamic role player. In fact, at, um, five foot nine and 165 pounds. He was a first team all state nose guard in football at Ridley high school. Hmm. And then um, also had a very successful career in wrestling, as I had mentioned. But I think what happened with lacrosse was I think that he was able to take his athleticism paired with his, his IQ and his hand eye coordination and a lot of the skills that you needed. I just think he was taken by the action, the pace of play Right. And the fact that um, he could really be a physical presence on the lacrosse field.
0: Right. So can you tell us what drew Nick to Hofstra?
1: Certainly. Um, believe it or not, um, Nicholas had the opportunity to play alongside of Brett Moyer as a, um underclassman at Ridley. And uh, Brett had the chance to play under John Donowski at Hofstra. And um, that was when Nick got his first um, introduction to Hofstra University. Mm -hmm. And um, believe it or not, uh, my younger brother, Michael, who had a very successful high school career uh, and went on to do great things as well at at Hofstra, um, was heavily being recruited. And Nicholas was somewhat of a dark horse. Um, Mm -hmm. He was someone who, from a lacrosse standpoint, was flying under the radar. And it was Brett who actually brought to Joe Amplo and John Donowski's attention the fact that Not only did Michael have, you know, uh, the skill set to really produce offensively, but then he also had a brother in Nick that was just um, a fierce competitor, uh, from a defensive standpoint. And, uh, what I think Nick connected with Hofstra was a couple of, a couple of important things. Uh, the first thing was, uh, the direction, um, and staff at the time uh were very fatherly and, and just mentors to Nick. So, right. uh guys like Joe Amplo really identified with Nick and vice versa. Um Nicholas and Joe were connected uh as spirits, man. They were kindred spirits for sure. Right. Uh and John Gasby's approach to coaching, his his overall um approach to the game, I think really uh allowed Nicholas to um really understand how he could succeed by being part of a team and being a role player on that team. In fact, that uh, when Nicholas came to Hofstra, he was um, not necessarily recruited as a close defenseman, but transitioned into that role. And I think that Hofstra yeah. saw unrefined skills in Nick. And also, I think that just the blue-collar playing mentality and just that area in general reminded Nick very much of our hometown.
0: Right. So, so when when Nick was recruited, Hofstra saw him as this is an athlete that we can. This is an athlete that'll be a role player, and he'll be he'll be good to fill whatever role we need him to do. And Nick was ready to do that. Is that
1: right? Certainly. In fact, uh, Nicholas certainly had a little apprehension with regards to like any freshman stepping onto a field and. You know, he was very lucky to uh, be part of a team that was anchored by some amazing athletes. Um, many of them, who, which um, have gone on to do great things. Guys like John Orson, uh, Ryan Kelleher, Brett Moyer, Sean McCarthy, Chris and Kevin Unterstein. Um, there was just an amazing camaraderie with those guys in a great environment for Nicholas to learn under. Uh, at the same token, he was recruited amongst a class of some incredible athletes, primarily from Long Island. And, um, Nicholas really hit it off well with them. But when he got to Hofstra, um, he w- was determined. Um, he was desert- determined to make a name for himself. Um, and so having that opportunity to play there, Nicholas was willing to do anything and everything to be part of the team and see the field. Right. Um, and as a result, Uh, After his first practice, he actually showed up at Coach Danowski's office and had a little one-on-one with him and explained that he was not there to um, sit on the bench, that he wanted to contribute. And, uh, you know, at this point, he was relatively unproven. So he spent his entire freshman fall essentially proving people wrong and earning uh, the opportunity to be woven into the lineup for his freshman season.
0: Right, right. And and it it, it doesn't sound like Nick is the type of kid – uh, you know, who who would be going to Coach Stanowski saying like, hey, I should be playing. It's more like, Hey, I'm gonna earn my role on this team. I'm gonna earn my spot. I think
1: Yeah, I believe in my heart that, you know, he wanted John to understand what he had in Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wanted John to understand that Nick was much more um than just someone that was going to uh be one of the guys that he was looking to make an impact. Right. Um, and he was willing to push himself harder than anyone. And I always tell a, a great story, uh, about a defenseman from Rocky Point, uh, New York named Jack DiVanetto. And, uh, Jack was a physical specimen heavily recruited by John and, uh, Nicholas and Jack, their freshman fall, uh, went head to head against one another, uh, if, you know, for weeks right. and, uh, and at the and at the end of fall. Um, Jack was actually asked to serve as a redshirt freshman to make way for Nicholas on the roster. Oh, and, wow. um, to this day, Jack is actually a Navy SEAL, just, oh. to, just to put that <laughs> into perspective. And, uh, what, yeah. what, st- what started out as a point of contention, uh, the two guys essentially became best of friends.
0: Right. And,
1: um, and that's, that remained true for the rest of my brother's life. So, uh, the Divinetto family certainly holds a very special place in our hearts. Uh, but, uh, that to just speak to the intensity. And I think if you spoke to any of Nick's teammates over the years, and, and there's been a ton, uh, many of who've gone on to play at the professional level, I think that the word intensity would be the one that would best describe his attitude and his approach to the game.
0: That's awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little more about his freshman year? Um, you know, going off of what you just said, um, you know, he worked to get some pretty significant playing time, correct?
1: Yes. In fact, um, like I said, it became a matter of understanding that, you know, Nicholas was relatively un- un- unrefined. And mm. um, and what the coaching staff did was they were able to, between uh, very well experienced coaches and an incredible upper class group, um, they were able to develop Nick. Uh, guys like you know, John Orson, as I had mentioned previously, and Brett Moyer, you know, they were able to teach Nick positioning and how to from a, um, just from a uh, positional standpoint, they were really able to increase Nick's IQ and he had a willingness to learn. That was one thing about Nick, which was quite special, was that he was a constant student and he was the type of person that, you know, believed in the concept of team. And had a willingness to go over and above for the sake of the team and just buy into a philosophy. And I think upperclassmen, you know, really appreciated the fact that this was a young man that was, that was willing to buy into the leadership that was in place, um, and really give his all for them. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that at the end of the day, his transition to Hofstra was incredibly positive because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he recognized that. Hofka presented a wonderful opportunity to him and to his family um and um like i said his freshman year was incredibly positive because it was just a a, a year of just achieving right. um and, and and in a way all the hard work that he had did in high school i mean when nicholas was at ridley he was part of three state championships three mm-hmm. consecutive state championships right. and in his junior year the team went undefeated and um you know he, while they accomplished great things there, you know, he was able to really, um, I consider master the, the the position, uh, and the sport for that matter at Mm -hmm. at Hofstra.
0: Right. So, so not only was he working with, you know, some of the best coaches in the game, but he also approached it with an attitude of, Hey, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to do, um, whatever I need to do to make it work.
1: That's exactly right. I think one of the biggest lessons learned you know, amongst um, kids that are transitioning to play, you know, at college. The idea that, you know, you are just one piece in a puzzle and there should be the attitude of doing whatever it is that a coach feels gives the team the best advantage of, you know, creating a mismatch or winning. And, um, and that may mean changing positions. You know, I know my younger brother, Michael, you know, was a very successful attackman, but he actually, you know, um, was put in a role of uh, leading the offensive charge from the midfield uh, mm-hmm. throughout his time at Hofstra just due to his sheer speed and ability to split dodge and cut the lane. Right. So, you know, Nicholas was more of, like I said, a defensive um You know, uh, ground ball master. You know, Mm -hmm. he was somebody who always came up with the ground ball, very dependable. Um, And I think that, like I said, from a defensive standpoint, there was um, a confidence that was established uh, and as well as a camaraderie amongst the defensive lines at Hofstra when Nick was there.
0: Right. Makes sense. Um, So, can you tell us about the day Nick was diagnosed?
1: Sure. Um, Certainly one of the um, most difficult. Situation um, situations ever to happen to our family and something that we wish no family, um, has to endure, uh, was the day that we learned that Nicholas had had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I can honestly tell you that Nicholas presented very little symptoms. In fact, the symptoms that he did present, uh, were no different than seasonal allergies. Uh, mm-hmm. in fact, what it had transpired was Nicholas came home. Uh, my mother was concerned about some whistling in his, in his nasal. Uh, and so she had scheduled an appointment at an ENT and they were quite concerned about just inflammation in his tonsils and adenoids, um, which essentially required just an extraction. So just a routine outpatient procedure. Uh, an extraction of the tonsils and adenoids, most kids have it. I know my son had it done when he was in first grade. Right. Um, and so anyway, uh, the last thing that we were prepared to hear was that there was a general concern that there was a possibility that it, there could be some cancer cells. And um, as a result, um, the specimen was sent for uh, diagnostic testing. Um, and in fact, that it did come back uh, as malignant. And um, Nicholas was told uh, at 19 years old that he had a very aggressive form of cancer. Wow. Um, at the time, we were quite foreign to uh, the disease and um, it definitely shook our family to its core. Um, but I can obviously elaborate a little bit about You know, Nicholas and his reaction, uh, to it. Uh, he was certainly aware that, um, there was some general concern by the physician, uh, regarding some of the coloration of the tissue that was extracted. And obviously he understood that there was a possibility. But, you know, one thing about my brother was that he was always very optimistic and very positive. And I think that there was a great, uh sense of just um a sigh of relief just in Nicholas's acceptance of um the fact that, you know, there was a possibility that there could be cancer. Nick was like, okay, like if it is, then you know, we'll re- we'll react to that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, that was kind of the way Nicholas elected to deal with things. I mean, you know, he was actually able to apply his, you know, mind over matter mentality to a lot of things. And mm-hmm. one of them was this cancer diagnosis. And so upon the extraction and while, you know, this uh, specimen was being, uh, you know, uh, reviewed, Nicholas actually returned back to Hofstra. And at the time, mm-hmm. my younger brother Michael was up there and the boys were roommates. Mm-hmm. And so, um, <sighs> It was um, actually in um, the about two weeks into the semester. So Nicholas was going into a sophomore year. Michael was just, you know, uh, moved in on campus. And, you know, this dream that the younger two brothers had was uh, came true for all of about two weeks before the rug was ripped down for Mondros. In fact, it was uh, September 21st um, of 2005 when Nicholas was diagnosed. And, uh, hmm. My parents were um, informed first. Um, and then believe it or not, myself and my brother Dan were informed. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually knew that Nicholas had cancer before he did. And so you could only imagine being remote. And, um, while my parents drove up to Hofstra to meet with John Donowski and Joe Amplo and a school psychologist, and you know, there was a plan being put into place to, You know how to tell nicholas and i think there was just a lot of anxiety based on how he would react and you know again uh my mother and my father drove up to hofstra they um were able to get nicholas and michael in the office and they were able to share the news and you know michael my youngest brother was absolutely hysterical and my brother nicholas was just taking the news almost in stride and um Hmm. after kind of understanding what exactly was being presented to him uh, Nicholas felt first and foremost that he wanted to share the news with his team. And, uh, you know, so in that moment, John Donowski and, and Coach Amplo were simply, and, and, and Ron Caputo were, were just reacting, you know, okay, whatever's going to make Nick comfortable. Are you sure you want to speak to the team? And Nicholas was adamant about it because the decision was made that day for Nicholas to withdraw from school to begin treatment here in Philadelphia. And that would require him leaving the campus. And, you know, um, he wanted his team to understand uh, what was going on and the fact that they were going to go into this thing as a team together and they were going to fight this thing. And hopefully, Nicholas would have that opportunity to get back to school as soon as possible.
0: Right, right. So so Nick's, so Nick's first thought, once he's told that he has cancer, is right with Hofstra lacrosse. Um, just basically because he understands that he's going to have to withdraw. And does he feel like, did he feel like he was letting the team down in any way or that, you know, or or that he, he at least owed them an explanation as to why he wasn't going to be there.
1: No, I think, I think if there was one thing that Nicholas felt from his teammates, and I think this is, you know, for anyone that is incredibly vested in, in the concept of team is that you realize that you're a role player. Right. You're, you're a mentor, you know, um, when you buy into something bigger than yourself, you know, how you contribute. It's like any family, mm-hmm. uh, everybody plays a position, everybody plays a role. And I think that what Nicholas was feeling in that moment was, and he's o- he always referred to his teammates as his brothers, uh, given that fraternal connection of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears on the field and off the field and just dealing with a lot of different variables. Mm-hmm. Um, As kids do in college, I think that um, Nicholas felt the fact that you know his teammates were his family, Mm -hmm. and um, and his coaches, as I had mentioned, took on more of a fatherly type of role, especially while we were in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And um, with that being said, I think there was a a trust and a faith in one another, and I Mm -hmm. felt like Nicholas, you know, wanted to um, to share this unfortunate news with his teammates, because when you're part of a family, you know, you, you, you have to do that. You know, sometimes life isn't easy and sometimes there's unexpected bumps in the road. And Nicholas wanted to also, I think provide his teammates with the assurance that no matter how things were going to go, you know, that they were going to do it together. And that even though he would be in Philadelphia and be leaving the team, he was, he was still part of the team. Right. And, um, and you could talk to this day, John Donowski, Joe Amplo, um Neil Goldman from uh, from Under Armour or mm-hmm. anyone who was in that room and they will tell you probably it was probably one of the most defining moments in all of their careers because of the courage uh that Nicholas displayed in that moment.
0: Right, for sure. For sure. So can you you know over the, the course of the next couple of months, you know, while Nick is fighting this diagnosis, can you can you talk about how Lacrosse helped him through this time?
1: Sure. First and foremost You know, we really didn't understand as a family the severity
0: of Nicholas's
1: illness. Hmm. Um, We did not understand the aggressive nature or the fact that most physicians would call Nicholas terminal. Hmm. Um, Nicholas' approach to fighting cancer was the same way that he had approached athletics over the years. And that was incredibly positive. And he built relationships with his oncologist and his nurses and everyone around him um he just had this charismatic personality that just people gravitated to and so no matter what he was physically enduring um he was always with a smile on his face and as uh an elder sibling um i took great pride in knowing that you know um that what he was dealing with he was going to get over because of his approach um and with that being said, um, you know, over the next few months, the the hardships of enduring chemotherapy uh, and all those different things, you know, we as a family, we made a pact, and that pact was no matter what, we were going to be by Nick's side. You know, this was, you know, our fight, and I think that when you deal with cancer, you know, you're always looking to assure a loved one. That they're not alone. And that's exactly what we did. We, the position that we as a family played. And so we spent a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I can certainly tell you that the lacrosse community began to, um, really play a factor in our road to recovery, if you will. Um, not only did teams by the droves reach out once, you know, Nicholas's uh, story became public, um, what had happened was uh, media sources like ESPN and MSG up in New York and NBC uh, began to pick up on um, what was happening with Nicholas. And um, as they were, you know, chronicling his journey, Nicholas was very much a public ambassador uh, for the disease. Right. It's something very early on that you know, that he was committed to was using his experience with cancer for the betterment of other people. And he felt like through lacrosse, there could be this incredible platform, um, just based on his own experience of fraternal brotherhood that he experienced, um, as a player, let alone being a patient. And Mm -hmm. so when, when, when he was dealt his hand, um, you know, how small the community can be, which is probably one of its best attributes right. uh, is just, you know, how accessible people are mm-hmm. and uh, people just in, um, in just the best of intentions were reaching out to Nick mm-hmm. with letters and signed jerseys and signed helmets and, you know, um, mm-hmm. visits and calls. And um, I remember specifically like Chris Bates, uh, the day Nicholas was diagnosed was at our door, you know, how can we help? What can we do? Wow. You know, Nick, I recruited, you know, he was like, Nick, I yeah. recruited you, you know, I, I'm here, you know, I live this reality with my wife and, you know, uh, we started to hear from coaches around the country, hmm. fellow teammates, you know, it's weird. It's like, you know, it takes, unfortunately, the, the worst of circumstances to bring out the absolute best in people. And, um, and, and, and what was happening was as Nicholas was receiving these letters and, you know, chronicling what he was living with and dealing with, and, you know, um, sharing his experience publicly, people started to, you know, comprehend and process what was happening to Nick and take notice of things. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I was incredibly proud of was the fact that he had such a willingness to be really an open book and, you know, um, understood that, you know, he could make a difference. And I think that, when people saw his attitude, they were inspired, and, and and that inspiration resulted in them wanting to do something on Nick's behalf. Um, I'll be I'll be the first to tell you that um, the lacrosse community played such an, an amazing and significant role um, in the wake of the financial challenges that my family faced later on in Nicholas's battle, uh, as things really began to take a toll for the worse. Uh, and our family was financially paralyzed. It mm-hmm. was the lacrosse community that rallied and raised funds and championed our cause. And, and this is well before Headstrong even existed, but just our cause being our family in crisis. Right.
0: Um,
1: and um, and it's something I'll never forget. And it's why I'm so passionate about our sport mm-hmm. to this day, um, because they truly rescued us from the depths of right. some really difficult
0: times. So I I wondered if we can go into that a little bit more, um, you know, as, as you know, we talked and, you know, my, my dad passed away in 2006 from cancer as well. So I understand, um, you know, everybody in the family is affected by an illness like this. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more, if it's okay, if you can talk a little more about how your family was affected by Nick's illness.
1: Sure. Um, well you know, emotionally shattered, mm-hmm. um, to say the least. Um, I think one of the hardest things for anyone is to watch on a daily basis, uh, someone that you care so much about in the world, um, struggling. Right. And, um, you know, somebody that is so full of life, having it just taken from him on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the end of the day, I know each one of the members of my family process things differently. You know, we're all different as people. And so for my parents, um, they were terrified. They were right. filled with anxiety. Right. And then on top of that, they had the additional burden of going to work every day and fielding questions from people. You know, how's Nick? How's Nick? You know, we really didn't want to, you know, convey or worry people about his health state. Um, you know, um, but I will say this, that um, despite how difficult it was to navigate that time, um, it really kind of brought us together. I think, you know, when you when you really look at, you know, um, how important family is, you really come to value those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were together, we were united, um, you know, everyone was working together to try and lift mixed spirits or make right. life easier for each other or offset the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me as, as, as a elder sibling, um, I was very sick about my brother. Um, right. I will actually share with you that I actually lost a job. Missed Nicholas's cancer fight because I was so consumed with with um, what was happening to our family that I just could not perform in a in a in a, in a sales function. Right. Um, and so my uh, my brother Daniel um, again internalized things, and um, you know was was the one of us who really played such a significant role in helping my family financially navigate things. And uh, and Michael, you know, Michael was still up at Hofstra at the time. And so, you know, again, he was um, up at school and uh, it was funny. He and I were talking last night and um, he had said that the minute he learned uh, that he didn't think in his heart that Nicholas was going to make it, he withdrew from Hofstra immediately and came home. And so um, he actually spent the last two months really caring for Nick by his bedside. And um, like I said, I mean, it's it's like, um, I don't think people understand in the moment, you know, the only way I can really explain it is that from our family's perspective, I've always said that it felt like our life was like completely halted. Like if you could take a remote control and hit a pause button Mm -hmm. and then your life is just at a standstill, but everything else is moving around you. You know, people are carrying on with their lives and going to work and dealing with different things and your life is just halted. Right. And, um, you know, and, and that was probably one of the most difficult feelings uh, that I've ever experienced in my life. And, um, and at the end of the day, you know, you're just hoping for positive news. You know, you're going to a doctor's appointment and you're filled with anxiety and you don't know what it's going to be. You know, the doctor could tell you, well, we have this controlled," or, you know, unfortunately this is advanced and progressed. And, you know, that happened throughout the duration of my brother's treatment. Nicholas was really never given any type of positive news. Um, So you could only imagine how defeating that was from a mental standpoint uh, and from an emotional standpoint, you know, and one thing for my brother, I can tell you that what really bothered Nicholas throughout cancer wasn't so much having the disease or enduring the physical treatment or the side effects. It was really um, his concern um, for everyone else around him. Um, what bothered my brother most wasn't so much the fact that he had cancer. It was what it was doing to everyone that he cared about,
0: right. what it
1: was doing to my mother and my father, right. you know, at one point in time. And it's in these moments that you really find what true sacrifice is all about. You know, I'll forever admire my mom and dad for their courage um, for, you know, going to work 10 and 12 hour days and then drive right to the hospital to take care of Nicholas to relieve one another. Um, you know, and like I said, when I when I think about uh what we went through, um, there were certainly a lot of emotions, um, a lot of positive things came out of it. But I'll be the first to say that you know, nothing can prepare you for dealing with cancer because it's not like a cold. It's not like it gets better. You know what I mean? And in our case, it just progressively got worse. Um, And so when you pair that with the stresses of everyday life and household expenses, and then unplanned and unfortunate medical expenses, and then you come to find that like, you know, there's a treatment option that may have worked, um, and that's in Bethesda, Maryland. We relocated at the end of Nicholas's life in an attempt to save his life. Mm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's just a feeling of not having control, Right. and it's probably one of the most unsettling feelings that anyone could be dealing with.
0: Right. Well, listen, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, uh, and I mean, I, I think you described it perfectly with time just stops. Um, time just stops, and you feel like you have no idea when the next, sort of when the next shoe is going to drop, you know, like w- what news is going to come from any doctor's appointment? Um, I certainly understand where you're coming from, and I, and I appreciate you being willing to share that with us. Um, but can you tell us how Hoster lacrosse and the lacrosse community in general led to the creation of the Headstrong Foundation?:
1: Certainly. Um, it was my brother's desire for normalcy. And if you have experienced cancer, like you said, with your father, and you know anyone that has really walked in these shoes understands that there's this overall desire to have life the way it was before you were diagnosed. In fact, right. uh, just this past Friday, uh, I was spending time with a young man by the name of Cole Neville, who is a club lacrosse player from uh, the University at Albany. And um, he's currently battling stage two testicular cancer, which has uh, progressed to his lymph nodes. And um, I was visiting him up in Cornwall, New York, and um, he had actually said the same exact thing to me. And um, just this desire to have life the way it was before your diagnosis. And so mm-hmm. at that point, that's what Nicholas understood. And it was a combination of, I think, three primary things. The first thing was his desire to be back at school and to have life the way it was. Nicholas would always say, you know, when I have the ability to go to practices and be on the field and watch games, it's like all that I'm going through doesn't matter because when I'm at Hofstra, I'm normal and I'm, you know, I'm part of something bigger than myself. So I think number one, his desire to do things in lacrosse was anchored primarily by that. The second thing was the idea that his short-term goal was to be able to return to his original weight as well as physical demeanor uh, and stature uh, prior to his cancer diagnosis because um, during that time, he lost a significant amount of his body mass uh, just due to just sheer appetite changes and just, you know, um, just side effects of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was just, You know, the desire to, um, you know, take this support system that was reaching out, um, so generously and, and, and be able to harness that for good. Um, so that was the second thing. Um, and then the third thing was to be able to do something with family. And I think that you'll, you'll find that at the root of our lacrosse community, is family. So his love for the sport and his team in school, the love for the support that was being displayed towards him and this critical time for our family, and also this, um, this idea of family and how together as a sport, there could be a sizable impact on behalf of people who have had the rug ripped out from under them.
0: Right. Right. So I, I want to get more into the Headstrong Foundation in a second, but I was wondering if you could, if you would mind telling the story about the last time, uh, Nick got to play lacrosse.
1: Sure. And, um, it's probably one of the most emotional stories that as a brother, I can tell, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, um, I had the opportunity to, uh, to coach my brothers in high school, Mm -hmm. um, which was certainly, um, something really, really special. Um, I coached a Ridley box lacrosse program and, uh, had that opportunity. Ironically, I also had the chance to coach against my brothers because, um, I Mm -hmm. served as an assistant coach at Unionville high school and we actually played one another. So, you know, there were always a lot of, um, And I think this is in any household of all boys. There's always sibling rivalry, but, you know, we also were incredibly tight as brothers and uh, we spent a lot of time on the athletic field together. Um, But in this particular time that you're referring to the last time my brother had played the sport uh, throughout, you know, throughout his treatment, he made so many attempts when possible to attend games, whether it be at Hofstra or whether it be at Ridley because of just the feeling of, you know, of of, of of the attention not being on him, so to speak, in a negative way. Right. Um, so anyway, um, he had actually spent 45 days inpatient while undergoing a stem cell transplant. Um, and it was during that time that it was probably the most emotional and financially um, paralyzing time That any of us had ever uh, been through. Uh, You know, like I said, when your loved one is in the hospital with no chance of coming home, you don't know how they're going to react. Essentially, they were re engineering Nicholas's DNA in hopes of creating a cell that would be resistant to the cancer. Um, And this procedure was in very, uh, you know, clinical phases at the time. Uh, unfortunately, Nicholas was not a candidate for bone marrow transplant because we did not have a genetic match and we were up against a race against time. So a decision was made to use his own DNA as a, um, catalyst for creating, um, and, and rebuilding, um, his DNA. So, um, they pursued the route of a stem cell transplant. And, um, so anyway, 45 days in the hospital. And the thing that got Nicholas through that time was just the idea and desire to then one day have the opportunity to play lacrosse again. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicholas got discharged on a uh, Tuesday, and it just so happens that there was a summer lacrosse league game playing. Uh, in Philadelphia, in the suburbs, there is um, a summer league that has been around since the 1960s. And it's relatively informal. It's, um, you know, guys come together. They, you know, play uh, in about a, a six to eight week season. And um, it just so happens that the day that uh, Nicholas was discharged, he knew that there was a, a game happening and um, pending on things, you know, he had asked my mother and father if it was at all possible to just go and watch the game. You know, he was in the hospital cooped up for 45 days. Um, and during that time, all he wanted to do was just get outside. Right. And, uh, you know, I got to be honest, my mom and dad, you know, were certainly um, skeptical just of having Nick in, an, in a weakened state uh, go outside, you know, right. at the end of the day, you know, he was also uh, immunosensitive um, because of his condition. And um, they were just safeguarding Nick. And uh, But at the end of the day, you know, you also want to let this young man who's been through so much just ha- have, have some regularity in his life. You know, and so my mom and dad saw no harm in going to the game. So um, Nicholas was discharged in the morning and uh, got home, got some rest. And uh, lo and behold, he packed his stuff. And um, so, you know, halftime comes and goes and Nicholas is watching from a chair on the sideline. And uh, and at this point in time, you know, he was starting to show the decline in his physical stature. He had lost uh, a significant amount of weight. Um, But people were just so excited to see it. And um, he had actually asked my dad, um, would it all be possible to play? And my father was like, not at all. um, (laughs) And um, so halftime comes. And Nicholas um, ducks behind the truck and uh, actually suits, suits up. And the next thing you know, um, he is um, standing on the sideline in all his gear. And um, my dad's like, Where's Nick? You know, where's he at? Realizes that he's standing on the sideline. And uh, my father comes over and says, You know, Nick, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't go out there. And my brother turned to my dad and said, dad, I've been in the hospital for 45 days. I've been fighting cancer for the past eight months. And to be honest, like, this is where I need to be. And, um, he actually went out onto the field. Uh, my father let him run one shift. Um, he went out on the face off wing, uh, came up with a ground ball, brought it up, passed it to my brother Michael, assisted a goal. And, um, you know, his shift may have lasted 20 seconds.
0: Um,
1: but he came off the field and, uh, you know, took his helmet off and, uh, he had a smile ear to ear. And I like to think that he was more or less saying to the cancer that he was facing and fighting that you don't have me yet.
0: Right. And
1: in, in that moment after being, you know, in the hospital for 45 days and, having you know chemicals throughout his body and just you know all the negative setbacks in that moment he was like a release. Right. He right. was able to channel um all the frustration and anger and all the things that he was, you know, dealing with and he was able to turn it into a positive and productive opportunity on a lacrosse field.
0: Right. And right.
1: um it was probably hands down the most important game if not the most important shift he ever played because it, it was his last. And in that moment, he truly made it count. It might as well have been a state championship. It might as well have been a national championship because in that moment, after enduring all that he had had, um, this was just
0: almost like a protest
1: against, against all that he had been through up until right.
0: that point. Right. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, think it, I think it speaks to Nick's strength um, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to say more importantly, but it, it speaks to how much he loved the game, right? Where, you know, the day he gets out of the hospital, um, you know, the thing that he wants to do is get on the lacrosse field a little bit more towards what you were saying before. He just wanted things to go back to the way they were. Um, listen, I, I, I really appreciate you telling us that story. You know, I, I know it's, I know it's hard to sometimes relive these things, but, again, thanks for, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, so, so if we can, like, like I mentioned, I want to talk a little bit about the Headstrong Foundation. Can, so can you tell us about the foundation? Um, what, what is the foundation's mission?
1: Certainly the mission of the Headstrong Foundation is to improve lives affected by cancer Mm -hmm. and to serve as the support system that we wish existed when the rug was ripped out from under us. Mm -hmm. We specialize in tackling the emotional, the financial, the logistical, and the residential obstacles plaguing families and quite preventing them from pursuing the best possible treatments. The Headstrong Foundation is um, committed to coaching patients and their families to and through the disease, helping them to make um, comfortable decisions and helping them navigate the most uh, difficult decisions of their life. And... um, you know, playing more of a direct support role, um, working hands on with families throughout the country. And, um, and like I said, you know, this was conceptualized by Nick because he witnessed firsthand, you know, the, uh, the gaps and the voids in healthcare and, uh, how family dynamics and financial situations often influence people sacrificing best possible care he also lived the realities of things not being covered under insurances and you know my my family having to you know get relatively street smart with regards to sustaining his health care so you know there is um you know a element of great humility in our mission because we know what it's like to you know to swallow our pride and ask for help we know what it's like to be in those desperate times in the trenches we know what it's like, unfortunately, to lose a loved one. And we also know what it's like to to really, um, you know, to try and navigate uh, the grief process. Um, and so there's also an element of our mission that is, you know, working with families in the wake of, you know, losing someone with cancer um, and, and boosting them up to a point where they can memorialize their loved one uh, in, in, in many ways.
0: Right, right. So, so it sounds like the Headstrong Foundation, you know, you guys aren't just focused on the financial aspect of dealing with the disease. You're looking at things through, you know, the whole picture, the, like you said, the emotional, the physical, um, and you're trying to build what Nick has sort of had his entire life playing lacrosse is just this, this community, this family that's there to support people through such a tough time. Certainly.
1: Um, you know, this is an organization I take great pride in because I've had the uh, privilege of, um, and not just myself, uh, but our family and our team here at Headstrong, um, you know, takes uh, a very organic and uh, direct approach to working with families. Um, you know, I think one of the most important resources that we can be is a shoulder for families to cry on um, and then obviously addressing the pressure points throughout one's experience with cancer often financial um, and um, you know trying to rescue them from the debts, um, and uh, whether it's holding the hand of a caregiver and helping them navigate how to communicate to a loved one who's dying um, whether it's Um, you know, just trying to keep a family unit intact during a very, very difficult experience, uh, helping them make decisions to pursue treatment regimens, um, helping them to, um, to just kind of comprehend things with more clarity and transparency, you know, realizing, uh, You know, sometimes when you're talking with someone, you know, me personally, while I physically never endured chemotherapy, I can certainly put you in touch with many of people who have, you know, that can relate. So, you know, I would want to say that the biggest overshadowed challenges in healthcare is where Headstrong goes to work. The limited accessibility to treatments paired with affordability are the fields that we play on. Mm
0: -hmm. Gotcha. And can you talk about, How has the foundation grown since its inception?
1: Certainly, because that has been one of the most amazing stories in and of itself. And I believe it's a true testament to Nicholas and his desire um, and the power of athletics and lacrosse in general. Um, I'm very happy to share that the Headstrong Foundation has played a hand in helping more than 18,000 families from across the country over the past 12 years. Uh, this organization has allocated um, upwards of $20 million in direct assistance and programming to families. We also uh, provide more than 3,000 nights of complimentary housing and underwrite each year $2.5 million in out-of-pocket expenses attributed to lodging. Uh, we own and operate guest family homes called Nix Houses. And these homes are designed specifically to meet the unique needs of patients and their families and um, provide them with complimentary housing so that they don't have to worry about navigating hotels and, you know, and, and all the anxiety that comes with a relocation. Um, you'd be surprised at how many people forgo best possible treatment just due to the feasibility of a relocation. Right. Um, We help ease that. We play such a significant role um, in that. And the homes are designed where they have everything from uh, private space, as well as common areas where they can interface and interact with other families living their same reality. They're able to reap the mutual benefits of that. Uh, They're woven into the fabric of the community so someone from Las Vegas, Nevada, can feel at home here in Philadelphia. Um, we're very close in proximity to public lines of transportation because you know we felt like that was important for people. A lot of our families are um, without a vehicle, so they're able to utilize public transportation to and from the medical center. Um, in addition to that, um, we provide workstations and virtual classrooms and recreational outlets and activities Um, that are designed specifically to meet their needs. Their homes are ADA compliant. They're absolutely beautiful. And uh, we're actually going to be planning on scaling Nick's houses into New York, Boston, and Baltimore over the next 15 years. So so what we've been able to do in the 12-year history of Headstrong is literally double our organization as far as our impact over the past 12 years, year after year after year. And we're led by a very simple strategy and philosophy, and that is the more we do equals the more we can do. Um, you know, we're driven by the idea of helping families remain whole and and and, and helping by using our experience, um, by approaching it in the most empathetic and compassionate. And most importantly, we're restoring the humanity um, to being to being sick with cancer, and trying to play that position, like I said, nothing's more disheartening uh, than when a loved one can't assure of, you know someone they're caring for the best possible care. Right.
0: And can you can you tell us where people can go to learn more about the Headstrong Foundation and to contribute?
1: Certainly, um, there are uh, a variety of great ways to get involved many opportunities within the sport uh and beyond uh certainly people can visit headstrong.org um to kind of better understand our website and understand how to get involved they can certainly follow us on uh all forms of social media at headstrongfnb um and that's a wonderful way to again um get involved from a from a very um you know um uh, a very organic level you can obviously get um, dialed into all the great opportunities that we have and our campaigns and things like that. Throughout the year we have some great outlets of engagement that range from actual events um, of an athletic nature uh, to different campaigns like lacrosse mustache madness and game hair havoc and the national Wax off against cancer which are interactive third-party campaigns. We have some wonderful alliances and partnerships in the sport with Premier League Lacrosse um, and National League Lacrosse, as well as String King. And there's great ways for athletes in our sport to get involved from a post-collegiate standpoint. uh, We have a great business development networking on uh, LinkedIn. It's our Headstrong Leaders program. Um, And again, if uh, someone has an idea and wants to champion our mission. You know, we're certainly uh, able to uh, and encourage that. To be honest, we have a great support staff here. Uh, we have uh, a fundraising team that's devoted to helping coach people to and f- through their fundraising, ensuring success. Uh, we have a, a more of a, a social work team here at Headstrong as well for people that actually are in need of our services, um, and and naturally. Uh, there's uh, an athletic backdrop to almost everything that we do because the way that we've designed this organization, it very much is on par with Nick's personality. Um, and the things that we do always go back to uh, to that. And I think that the fact that Nicholas was a young man at 19 when diagnosed, 21 when he passed away, a great deal of the things that we're involved with are with colleges. and. We actively interface with more than 780 uh, collegiate institutions each year. And uh, our involvement ranges from, uh, you know, uh, men's and women's lacrosse to different basketball and different football and sports, uh, you know, fall, winter and spring sports academic calendar. Also, um, we are uh, one of the charity partners of the Big East. Uh, which is wonderful. So there are conferences that have woven us into their fabric and um, We're just absolutely delighted and the beautiful thing is is that we still view this organization as though it's in its infancy uh, There's so much more that we can be doing um, I hope the lacrosse community takes great pride in knowing that by getting involved with headstrong that you're actually having the most direct impact that you can have on behalf of families because we're not just a fundraising arm. We are the arm. We are the arm of support. We are the boots on the ground. We are in the trenches with these families. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, the lacrosse community should really take pride in knowing that they've had a direct hand in shaping our social footprint. Um, and the more that they become involved, the more things that we can do. Because like I said, cancer is an epidemic and um while what we're doing is wonderful there's so much more that can be done
0: right well listen i mean that that's that's awesome to hear um it's been inspiring you know seeing what headstrong has done over the past couple years learning a little bit more about it and i'm really excited to see what happens over the next couple years the next 5 10 15 years like you mentioned um but uh pat I, i we will put those we'll put those links that we just talked about in the show notes of the blog post. So anybody who's looking to learn more or to visit the site um, or to contribute in any way, you can always you know follow the links that Pat will provide and then I'll put on the blog. Um but Pat, listen, thank you so much for taking the time and, and talking about Nick, talking about the Headstrong Foundation. Uh, you know, I know some of this is is tough to relive, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time and spreading the word.
1: Joe, it's my absolute honor and privilege, and I thank you so much for providing a platform for us to champion through.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Game Changer Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Uvoli. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Uvoli. You can find more episodes of the Game Changer Lacrosse podcast on The Season at theseason.gc.com. If you like the podcast, please take a second to give it a positive review on iTunes. This helps more people find the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GC Sports. And if you're a coach, a parent, or you run a travel or club team, check out Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. It's an essential, all-in-one scheduling and communication app for lacrosse coaches and parents. Game Changer Team Manager is free, it's easy to use, and it doesn't serve ads. Learn more at gc.com forward slash team manager. Until next time, keep working and keep getting better.